the talk is about awakening. I'd like to start with a <coughs> poem by Stonehouse, a 14th century Chinese hermit. Below high cliffs, I face a thousand mountains. One sense finds the source. All six relax. White clouds drift, green water ripples. Beyond movement and stillness, there is another world. One sense door finds the source, and all six sense doors relax. Beyond movement and stillness, there is another world. He's saying that any of the six sense doors can lead to enlightenment or awakening. The eyes, <coughs> ear, nose, mouth, skin, or mind. A moment of awakening is when the balance of seven factors of awakening happens. And this can only happen in one moment when we're awake, relaxed, when we're so fully present, it's a moment of complete understanding. Within the process of awakening, we have to come to terms with paradox, with duality, movement, stillness, life, death, observer, observed, or knower, known. Courage, fear, feeling lost, at home, boredom, interest. It goes on and on. Predator, prey, high, low. Beyond this world, this world. Awakening is coming to terms with paradox. And it's great fun when we understand that, that within this world we find the other world. Through understanding this world, we find peace. And because this is so simple and we're so complicated, it eludes us. That's what's so funny. <laughs> So the paradox of the joy and sorrow in this world can be shattering. It can crack us open and inspire us to go on a spiritual journey, which we're on whether we know it or not, and wake up from spiritual slumber. And this is called the awakening process or enlightenment. And the Buddha taught a conceptual framework for developing the light in the mind. And it's a conceptual framework for how balance can happen. And please remember, it's just a framework. So use what is useful, and you don't have to use what isn't useful. 
The Buddha taught the forces of light in the mind, these seven factors, and the forces of dark in the mind are the hindrances or the armies of Mara. Mindfulness is the first factor of awakening. And it's how um, the other six factors of awakening come into balance. Mindfulness. Mindfulness helps ripen the rest. And the next three, energy, I mean, investigation, energy, and rapture, are all energizing factors. And then the next three, calm, concentration, and equanimity, are tranquilizing factors. It's very important to remember that different factors are ripening in our practice over the course of a day or week or years. When they come into balance, as I said before, if we're completely here with present time awareness, it's possible for a completion of understanding to happen. As you all know, anytime we have a glimpse of freedom or this awakening, there's a great sense of freedom, peacefulness, happiness, because we're awake and we understand. Ultimately, understanding feels wonderful. Our potential for freedom matures as these factors of enlightenment evolve and mature. For no apparent reason, they come into balance. And it's important to see this as a gift. They can only come into balance now in one moment of paying attention to brushing your teeth or to lie down to go to sleep or when you eat a banana any moment being with the sound or the breath it's possible for these factors to come into balance and it takes a lot of practice and patience to understand this so if you remember learning to ride a bicycle one fell off a lot or you had training wheels (laughs) But eventually you had to face that falling off, losing balance. This is much more difficult. Having balance in a moment in the human world, having complete understanding, takes a lot of practice. Mindfulness is like the great foundation of freedom. The Buddha taught that a guarded mind brings happiness. And this is done through mindfulness. Mindfulness, as you remember, it isn't a thought about our experience. It's not a concept about our experience. And it's not complicated. It's very simple. It's a pre-verbal awareness. Being able to remember to do this is what it's all about. Mindfulness is a recollection of the attention, 
out of the future, out of the past. Its translation is sometimes recollection. So we collect ourselves into the present moment. And it's a, <coughs> it's a way of life. Sometimes I think when we leave a retreat, it would be nice to have some little medal or t-shirt, you know, or something <laughs> that signifies, you know, what we got. Uh, but what we get is to let go. We don't get anything except for this ability to remember, to let go of the past, to let go of the future. So remembering to come back to the present moment becomes a way of life. This commitment to do this deepens. The Buddha taught that all things can be mastered by mindfulness. Some of you may have seen the movie The Matrix this year, and I like the moment where Morpheus offered the hero the red pill or the blue pill. He had to make a decision about whether to take this pill or not and to choose. And the red pill meant that he would change his life forever and wake up. And the blue pill meant that he would stay asleep. But waking up wasn't a picnic. And in the movie, he only had to make the decision once. In actuality, (laughs) we make this decision every moment. And this isn't always easy for us to get. It would be so much easier if we just decided now, okay, I'll take the red pill. And then we didn't have to do anything. But it's not that simple for us. It means that we make that choice again and again and again between being here and being lost, being awake or asleep. And the reason that we have to do this is because life is changing. In the autumn in New England, if you look carefully, all the buds are ready for next spring. And if you look at the seeds that are flying around, they have wings. And they help the, wi- the seeds travel and find a new home. And mindfulness is just like a winged seed. So it's a seed that happens in that when we remember to come here, to be in the present moment, that remembering to be here gives us that moment. It gives us life. We're awake in that moment. And in and of itself, that could be a lot. But it also is a seed, a winged seed. That remembering to be here plants a seed for another moment to be mindful. And you can see that you have no control over this. You'll be here, and then you find that you might get lost. And then you notice you're lost. That noticing you're lost happens because you had another moment of mindfulness, and that planted a seed for that condition to ripen again. So the more you put yourself into this process of remembering, the more you'll remember. And the more busy we get and the more lost we get in the world, the less we remember. Those are the conditions for waking up. So a moment where you remember to be here has great power 
The second factor of awakening after mindfulness is investigation. Sometimes it's called, I call it interest, but its technical word is investigation. And this is what allows for the beginning of a pure exploration to happen in our practice. It's when we're not motivated by trying to get anything or to get rid of anything. It's just for the sake of investigating life as it is that we're interested. The Buddha called investigation the light in the mind. It's like turning a light on in the darkness, and it lights up what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience. And sometimes investigation is very subtle. There'll be a shift in the quality of the mind from thinking that we know what's happening. And we might not, not even realize that we're in that kind of complacency, where we're taking a step in walking, and it's just another step. Or we're noticing uh, that we're chewing <laughs> a banana, and it's just, we've had that experience before. We, we're just dulled, and it can be very subtle. Thinking we know what's happening creates dullness and moves into boredom if we're not careful. Investigation is what allows the mind to become bright, alive, crackling. Sometimes a simple question at the right moment can allow this subtle shift to happen. So if we're walking, if we take a step and we ask ourselves, what is this experience? Free from concepts, free from ideas. You know, what is the experience of the breath? Free from idea, free from concept. It's like this with anything, with chewing, with swallowing, with seeing. Ultimately, it's the question, who am I? Who are you? What is body? What is mind? Understanding earth, air, fire, and water. Understanding thought, emotion, mind states, mind. This investigation requires being willing not to know. And so much of this lack of investigation comes from being afraid to face that we don't know. The truth is that if life is changing, then we absolutely don't know what's going to happen right now, or the next moment, or the next moment. And facing that insecurity is hard for our little minds that vulnerability. If we can withstand the insecurity of not knowing, then that light in the awareness or investigation will appear, and it lights up the the truth of things, and it lights up the three characteristics of existence, the three characteristics of life. We might think we understand what anicca is or impermanence, but If you're really knowing it from the inside, it hasn't happened through the intellect, and it's not based on anything in the past. 
And if we think we know what it is, this direct experience of the nature or impermanence won't happen. If we're relying on some fore, foreknowledge or past knowledge. And it lights up not only impermanence, but dukkha, which I've been just talking about, that we don't know what's going to happen. And it lights up anatta. Have you ever noticed the experience of your tongue? Free from any ideas about it. It's totally bizarre. If you bring the attention right within the tongue and really get that you identify with that experience as you, it's totally bizarre. And it's amazing, it's interesting that we identify with that as me or I or mine. (laughs) Even if you look in the mirror and look at it, (laughs) it's even more bizarre. You know, if you take any part of ourselves, like the eyeball, You know, it's like we glue all that together and, you know, call it me. It's it's a strange thing. But are we interested? Are we really interested in the tongue? Or whatever. If you look closely at any experience, it's really insubstantial. There's nothing to hold on to there. And that's why it's hard for us to do that. I tend to appreciate last poems of great poets. And when Pablo Neruda was dying of cancer, he wrote a book called Still Another Day. And the last poem in this book is this poem. So long, visitor. Good day. My poem was for you, for nobody, for everyone. I am going to beg you, let me be. I live with the unbearable ocean, and I have a very difficult time with silence. I die with each wave, each day. I die with each day in each wave. But the day does not die, not ever. And the wave, it does not die. Gracias. Is it possible for us to face that we prefer entertainment over silence. I live with the unbearable ocean, dukkha. I have a very difficult time with silence. Are we interested in going to sleep? Are we interested in pain? Are we interested in being awake? And then to face this paradox, I die with each wave each day. 
I die with each day in each way, but the day does not die, not ever. It does not die. And the wave, it does not die. And then to say thank you. So can we face changing life and unchanging life? Change, changelessness. Look deeply, wake up, investigate. It leads to gratitude. Mindfulness, investigation, energy. Energy is the second of the energizing factors. Sayada Upandita called this factor energy, courageous energy. He called it courage. If we can investigate, if we can actually face, well, actually ask ourselves, actually ask ourselves what's happening in a moment, the energy is what allows us to face it. So the investigation is the question, and energy is what allows us to start connecting. It's courage to face how life is. At times, the practice of this facing reality can be effortless, and sometimes it can take a lot of effort. Both are true. That's the paradox. And if you remember, if you like to climb a mountain, sometimes it takes effort, and sometimes it's effortless. Both happen. Is awakening sudden or gradual? Both are true. It's that paradox again. I know that when I ride a bicycle, I really like to go downhill. And when I'm going uphill, I tell myself how good it is for me. (laughs) And sometimes when I'm going downhill, it's too fast, and I get scared. I'm going to hurt myself. And then I like uphill better. (laughs) Most of us tend to like effortlessness. Then we get this idea that that's how it is, that life isn't changing. Ardency. Can you think of energy as a kind of ardency for the truth? If you look at the process of striving, it it implies a kind of impatience. Striving is being ahead of ourselves and thinking that whatever we're experiencing isn't good enough for awakening. You know, that's always the joke. Somehow we can't see that what's happening for us is the path. And we tend to think that some other experience is the path. So the quality of not anticipating, not expecting, and letting life reveal itself with that thought, with that sound, whatever it is, is is that ardency. It's loving the truth so much that we're willing to face 
whatever experience is there because that's the truth. If you feel like there's a kind of impatience or striving, expectation, anticipation, one way that I tend to like to work with that is to remember what it's like to be driving a car. And if you're driving the car, you tend to be holding on to the steering wheel and thinking you're in control. Yeah? And we look ahead. But if you're in the back seat, and if you look behind you rather than in front of you, that's more like what's really happening. It's just going so fast. And if you are trying to look ahead, it doesn't work. But if you turn around and you look behind and you just settle back and let life reveal itself, it cuts through that expectation or anticipation or thinking we're in control. You're not driving. Courage, or the love of truth, is right effort. And right effort can't happen if we're caught in comparing. Comparing will lead to a sense of worthlessness if we don't like our experience, or it can lead to striving if we don't like our experience. And then not liking our experience will come from comparing. Comparing is the opposite of this not knowing what's happening. It's the opposite of that humility and purity of the heart just being open to what's happening. So if you look at just comparing ourselves with others, or it's like it's a competition with ourselves or others. The Buddha taught three kinds of conceit or comparing. Conceit is comparing. I am better than, I am equal to, I am worse than. The Buddha called this madness because it's based on comparing ourselves with other selves. It's based on separate selves, and it's not the truth. Sayada Upandita said to me, if we see the mind clearly, there's no possibility for conceit. If we look closely at the Buddha's teachings, we'll find that he was never willing to stop. He always said, there's more. You know, he had that courage to not stop within or without, but to keep going until there was no more suffering. It's said that this threefold conceit only disappears on full enlightenment. So this implies that we usually have more work to do. If you're feeling like you've got it, I would take an honest self-assessment because there's always more to do. This is a story from the Zen tradition. There's a um, patriarch of Zen He was the fourth patriarch, and I'm just going to call him Tao for now, Tao. He was in his hermitage, and he saw uh, on another mountain these birds 
soaring and circling around this spot on a mountain. And so he had decided to investigate what was going on and walk to the other mountain. And he found a monk sitting quietly, and there were footprints of wolves and tigers around this monk sitting on the ground meditating. And this monk's name was Fa Yung. And when Dao came up to him, he pretended to be scared of the wolves and tigers. So Fa Yung said to him, Oh, there is this still in you. Fear. But he didn't know that he was pretending. So then Dao responded to this question, Oh, there is this still in you. By drawing a character for the Buddha, in front of the monk that was sitting there, basically acting like he was free, right? And so this monk started to um, be embarrassed and blushed. And so Dao said to him, Oh, there is this still in you. And so Fayung became a disciple of Dao and became a great Zen master himself. Oh, there is this still in me. Hopefully we get to see that (laughs) over and over again. That's courage. That's heroic energy. One of the great metaphors for courage can be um, the metamorphosis of a butterfly. So if you think of the caterpillar, the cocoon, and then the butterfly, all the different factors of enlightenment are going through these stages. And you can imagine how much patience this takes because each process of metamorphosis takes great incubating in patience. So if you just think of the cocoon, Well, let's start with the caterpillar. You know, they're eating. They're just eating, 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 you know, on the leaves, chewing, 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 eating, 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 eating. And of course that caterpillar thinks that's it, yeah? And at some point they become a cocoon. And that's a long time in that darkness, just incubating. And we all know that if you open up a cocoon before it's ready, the butterfly won't be able to fly, the wings won't be strong enough. If we hate where we are, if we think we should be somewhere else, we get less and less energy and less courage. And if we have the patience not to measure where we are, not to compare, and we're okay where we are, we get more courage more energy. The practice is unfathomable, and especially on a long retreat, it's immeasurable. And we tend to have such a narrow vision of our practice. And my greatest gratitude to Sayada Upandita is how long he kept me places how long he would wait before he'd give me the slightest different instruction. And then when I would shift to something, he would look at me with this 
delight and mischief in his eyes and say, digest this. Whenever he said, digest this, I knew I was in for it for a long time. Digest this. That could mean years with him. It takes years for equanimity to ripen. You can't rush it. It's just like an apple growing on a tree. It has its own time. One of the great arts of meditation is knowing how to rest in the present moment very lightly, to be patient and to be here without needing the experience to yield anything other than just what it is. Sometimes you can even think of this as waiting. Waiting is okay. Hmm. Often the practice moves in a direction from a lot of efforting at the beginning of practice and desperation to a slow shifting to some effortlessness in practice. This is again a poem by Stonehouse. A wall of white haze obscures the horizon. All directions are indistinct. Don't bother trying to pull yourself over. Change your ways and it's time to sail. Changing our ways means that we have patience. We digest things. We know how to be here lightly through anything. And then we're not having to pull ourselves over the stream to the other shore. We sail. Because the funny part is, The shore is right underneath our feet. (laughs) It's just whatever's happening. We're not trying to get anywhere. That's when it becomes more and more effortless. So we're on the energizing factors of enlightenment. There's investigation, and then courageous effort or energy, and then joyful interest. So remember, there's a um, kind of process that's happening here. When we can connect the attention with what's happening, when we can sustain that, that's the investigation and the energy. We ask the question, we come face to face with what's happening, and then we sustain it. That's when we can face pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, rolling along. And joyful interest happens sometimes. Treat it as a gift. These are gifts. You can't make it happen, but sometimes rapture happens, or joyful interest. And the Buddha called this the gateway to enlightenment. Try to remember this. It's an important thing for people in our culture. Joy is the gateway to awakening. It should be written everywhere. Joy is the gateway to freedom. Wonder. Joy is wonder. 
And this can happen when we take the time to connect with what's under our feet. It's when we take the time to see the oatmeal. (laughs) Connect with it, taste it, swallow it. My grandmother used to call oatmeal something that really used to scare me. I wasn't I wasn't exposed to much food when I was a kid, um, just alcohol, actually. And when I'd, uh, when I'd go to my grandmother's house, because believe it or not, we never even ate at a kitchen table. Like Things were pretty unfunctional. And when I'd go to my grandmother's house, she actually sat me at a table and tried to make me eat oatmeal. And you know, this was like, all I ate was red licorice, so this didn't look so good to me. So she tried to make it sound better, and she'd say, it's going to stick to your ribs. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I, my mind used to just stop. Like It was like, how could she want this to stick to my ribs? It sounded terrible. Um, so every time I see oatmeal, I have to get over that conditioning. And I love oatmeal. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> it has brown sugar in it. <laughs> So joy, it's when we take the time to connect with the breath. It's taking time. It's taking the time to really be with a friend, to see a flower, to see oatmeal as if it's for the first time. It's don't know mind. And we can recognize this quality because it's just like the soft heart of a child. It's truly wonder, and it's very energizing. It's the deep delight in the truth of things. It's the opposite of ambition. It's the opposite of timidity. It's the opposite of judgment or dullness or righteousness. And when joyful interest happens, we've cut through the pleasure-pain syndrome. We're no longer a victim of life anymore. This is huge. And when we're talking about opposites, the opposite of this joyful interest is when you're feeling like you're just getting through the retreat. You know, how we get through the next week, and we get through the next thing, and it's that feeling that what's happening isn't quite good enough, or that we're not quite good enough. And here comes that comparing again, or judging. When the comparing happens, it's really just a defense where we're afraid of the experience of worthlessness, We're afraid of the experience of jealousy. And we get caught in ourselves not being good enough, or our moments not being good enough, or others not being good enough. And by being afraid of the experience of jealousy and worthlessness, they become more intense. And that that is what leads to ingratitude. Life isn't good enough. And so we can see how comparing kills joy. Comparing is what kills this fourth factor of enlightenment, and it kills gratitude. And this is so painful. 
this is what leads to depression. We don't want to be here. All depression is, is a temporary moment of aversion and getting really identified in that. And this comes up for us as humans. Sometimes we want to be here, and sometimes we don't want to be here. And it's important to start being able to just be mindful of those experiences. We don't have to get identified or lost. And how do we bring about this joyful interest? It's through connecting. Anytime we connect and receive a breath or connect and see a blue jay. I had so much conditioning that blue jays were awful beings from when I was really young. You know, they steal things from other birds. They kill robins in their nest, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And it took me so long to actually look at a blue jay and not see all that. Just just to see the blue jay for what it is. It's a predator. They're beautiful. And can we accept that predator and prey that don't know mind? This is by the poet Basho. Your song caresses the depths of loneliness, high mountain bird. This is joy. Your song caresses the depths of loneliness, high mountain bird. Joy is the gateway to enlightenment because it allows the truth of life to touch our hearts in a non-intellectual way, and that's how wisdom arises. If you experience joyful interest, sometimes it can lead to attachment. It can get out of balance. So when we experience joy, it's important at times to it to note enjoyment so it doesn't lead to craving, but you don't have to repress the joy. Often we'll have a sense that it's not okay to be joyful and repress it. And we, we need to know how to use the energy of the joyful interest to see more clearly. So it's an art not to get too high, <laughs> and not to repress it, but to just go with that energy and take it to see more clearly. If we start to get caught in it, we can do mudita practice. Within the mindfulness practice, if you have some enjoyment and you see that you can easily get lost in craving, see if you can just appreciate the joy. Mudita is the appreciation of joy or the blessings in life. Try it the next time they serve chocolate chip cookies. Or if it warms up again, if. If you're watching a sunset, whatever it is, it's like when you notice the pleasure, the enjoyment, and if you find yourself starting to solidify around it and you can't be mindful of it, 
you can also step back and just appreciate our blessings, appreciate the joy. There's a lot of beauty in this world as well as sorrow. And remember that beauty, opening to it and not getting lost in it, is an important part of being human. Of course, there's the great saying, what goes up must come down. And so the energizing factors need balancing with the tranquilizing. Investigation, energy, joyful interest are the energizing factors. Calm, concentration, equanimity are the the opposite, the balancing of those, tranquilizing. In one of Grimm's stories, the fairy tales, there is a competition between a giant and a little tailor to see who is stronger. Can you tell who's going to (laughs) win? The giant throws a stone so high that it takes a very long time, but it comes down again. But the little tailor has a little bird in his hands, and he lets the bird fly and it doesn't come down at all. Anything without wings always comes down in the end. So the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors are the two wings. Or we come down, or we go too far up. This is what allows balance to happen and awakening to happen. We need both the relaxation and the alertness. So joy can become highly energized, and rapture can get very painful and unpleasant if identified with. I am joyful. We take it personally, and we go down. Calm. The Buddha said that calm was like going into the shade from the hot sun. Another description that you might like is if you had a loud refrigerator on, and it went off. It's like that energy shifts to this calm. If you like intensity, calm might be a factor of enlightenment that might take time to ripen. We might not like it at first, that calm. When I was um, working here as a cook in 1978, I think it was early 79, uh, the great Mahasi Sayadaw came here to teach a three-week retreat. Uh, And we didn't have enough staff. There were 140 yogis and lots of guests, no rooms. So I gave up my room and lived in a tent in the back. And I used to get up at 1 or 2 in the morning to cook for Mahasi and his monks that came with him. Then I'd cook all day for the 140 yogis. And so I'd get up, very tired each morning, and kind of go running down to the house across the street, which is where he was staying. And I didn't ever know anything about Asia or monks. or I <laughs> was really green. And so I wore this sleeveless dress that went up to like the middle of my thigh. 
that was just how I dressed in the summer, you know. And so I'd go running down there and I'd open the <laughs> screen door and I'd go running in. And I'd hit this calm, you know, I'd never been around energy like that before I could actually feel it. It would be like I hit a wall of calm and I'd just stop. And it was so unfamiliar. It was just like, whoa, what's this? Uh, and I'd, you know, start cooking with this person that came with Mahasi to cook. He just cooked for Mahasi. And it turned out later that I found out that he was a meditation master. Uh, and when I would get there, it's really interesting, but he'd always stop me and he'd feed me jaggery. And jaggery is a Burmese sugar. It was like he knew the key to my heart. So he'd feed me this sugar. <laughs> and then we'd start cooking. And it was so calm. Uh, and one day I was cooking with him and I burned my finger pretty badly. Uh, and I was going to do my usual routine of like, ah! I burned, I burned my finger, and he just stopped me, and he said, burning, and I was about to go, ah, but it's my finger, and it's hot, and it hurts, and he'd go, burning, 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 it was incredible, it was okay, it was just burning. <laughs> You know, and that's all it was. It was fire element. Very calm. <laughs> Next talk. <laughs> calm. Tranquilizing factors. Concentration. Remember that concentration shouldn't be overestimated and shouldn't be underestimated. We need just enough of it to see clearly in Vipassana practice. Some people think they don't have enough. Doubtful. Some people tend to love concentration and actually have too much. It's okay, you learn how to balance it. Concentration is a kind of seclusion, and it's a protection. And remember that it's important to protect your practice. So it's the, it's the ability to have enough stillness and steadiness of mind to see clearly. But remember, it's momentary concentration. It doesn't have to have the force of rocket science. It has to be a light concentration to have this ability to just see moment-to-moment experience. And sometimes it'll feel microscopic, and that's great. If you can be microscopic, great. If you can't, that's fine. You can be concentrated with a more open attention. It's more like an orchestra, listening to an orchestra. Calm, concentration. Just feel the difference of these factors. Equanimity, balance. One time a yogi was sitting the three-month retreat toward the end of the retreat, and she was new, 
and she came in and she had this real quiet ease and deep happiness and she said, you know, I have no resistance to anything whatsoever. You know, she didn't know that was equanimity, but it was so beautiful. It's like, oh, whatever this is, it's good. <laughs> no resistance means that we're transparent, that there's peace, unconditional acceptance, a nonviolent heart. And when that's happening, the attention is effortlessly smooth and spacious. There's an inner peace or space. And when I first started practicing, one of the first things I had to learn equanimity was was sleepiness. Sleepiness was the beginning of me learning equanimity because I hated it. And it was my hindrance of choice. I had no control over it. Really, I'm the queen of slav and torpor. Nobody's ever gotten the crown from me yet, and I've taught a long time. You know, it's like amazing. And my first thoughts with it, you know, when it was so predominant, were, what am I going to do with all this sleepiness? And then it was like, oh, maybe I'd better try experiencing this. And then once that kind of moved enough, the fog lifted some aversion, (laughs) hit hard. And it hit so hard at first, it was like, what am I going to do with all this aversion? You know, and then it's always like, da 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 <laughs> Maybe I'm going to have to learn how to be mindful of this. And that was the process. It was like, the next one was loneliness. <sighs> it was killer loneliness at first. I didn't think I'd survive it. What am I going to do with all this? You know, when equanimity comes, that unconditional acceptance, it'll come and go. But that's where we learn how to practice. The purest mindfulness comes out of the purest equanimity. They feed each other. So as the equanimity will ripen, your mindfulness will ripen. As the equanimity gets more pure, your mindfulness will get more pure. And believe me, I've said this before, but all you have to do is punch in in the morning and punch out at night. You know, this is going to happen if you just put yourself through it over and over and over. The greatest paradox of all is life and death. What is life? What is death? There's a great teacher named Srinazar Gadara Maharaj who was a teacher in India. And he said, don't accuse me of being born and don't accuse me of dying. Investigate that. What does that mean? To have no identification with being born and no identification with death. That's pretty transparent. So in terms of the seven factors, if you're feeling too relaxed or too calm, you're getting too complacent or sleepy or bored or impatient, 
try a little investigation. And that'll kind of bring open at times that process of investigation, energy, joyful interest. It brings light or energy to the system at times. And if you feel overly energized, excited, exuberant, it's possible to balance oneself with calm, concentration, equanimity. And it's not helpful to think too much about this. You'll learn it over time, but it's a context again. It's like learning the nuts and bolts of balance in practice. It's learning about the balance of relaxation and alertness. And remember that mindfulness is what helps all of these to stay in balance and to ripen over time. So, I'd like to end with a poem about awakening and balance. And this is from Stonehouse again. He did a series on Below High Cliffs. Below High Cliffs, unaware of the source. Wherever you turn is karma, chaos, and confusion. In order to see the truth, Look beyond your senses. It's always been this way. The spring flows all around you. These are deep. If we're lost, all we see is chaos and confusion. Below high cliffs, unaware of the source, wherever you turn is karma chaos, and confusion. In order to see the truth, look beyond your senses. It's always been this way. The spring flows all around you. Let's sit for a minute. May we wake up from spiritual slumber. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.